Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Today, it gives me great pleasure, toward the end of our seminar series, to introduce Andrew Phillips, Associate Professor of International Relations and Strategic Studies over at UQ. He's a, a bit of a local celebrity here in Brisbane. Many of you know him already. The thing we would probably know him best for around here is that he and Jason just brought out a book in 2015 with Cambridge University Press, International Order in Diversity, War, Trade, and Rule in the Indian Ocean. And he also published in 2011 with the same press, War, Religion, and Empire, The Transformation of International Orders. Today he's going to speak to us, and the title of his talk is From Confucian Peace to Pax Manjurica, Rethinking International Hierarchy in Early Modern Asia. Great. Well, thank you for that very generous introduction, and thank you for welcoming me to Griffith. To give you the backstory, this paper is animated by a broader concern that I share with Jason in terms of looking at making sense of international relations theory through a more sustained engagement with the study of the evolution of non-Western international systems. My largest theoretical interest in terms of my, my most enduring intellectual passion is looking at the historical transformation and evolution of international orders. Um, and I've been very lucky to be operating in international relations at a time when this is an issue is really beginning to animate a lot of quite fascinating studies. In particular, and this is what brings me to this project, there has of late been a much more sustained effort to engage in the study of East Asia's historical international system, notably but not exclusively looking at the Ming and Qing dynasties as an alternative way of organising international relations that contrasts with Westphalian anarchy. And in particular, there has emerged under the intellectual entrepreneurship of people like uh, David Kang the emergence of what I call in this paper the Confucian Peace Thesis. Confucian Peace Thesis, as I'll go into greater detail in the paper, essentially casts East Asia as being a hierarchical international order in contrast to the anarchic state system that emerged out of the mid-17th century, an order that is moreover characterised by peace between its principal players rather than the supposedly endemic war that characterised relations in the West. And it is one, most importantly, in which that condition of hierarchical peace is predicated not merely on China's overwhelming material superiority, but on the, if you like, the cultural magnetism of a Confucian shared culture that enabled first Ming and then Qing China to live on peaceful terms with other Confucianized uh, societies, particularly Korea and Vietnam, and to do so on the basis of particular shared understandings about the legitimacy and virtue of a Sinocentric hierarchy. This is a model of international politics that contrasts very starkly with what we know about the Westphalian system. It is one that I think has helpfully unsettled a lot of assumptions about international relations theory that were previously extrapolated exclusively from the Western experience. It is a bold and provocative argument that foregrounds constructivist rather than realist explanations for stability in international politics and most importantly from my perspective it is also substantially wrong at least in as much as I think there has been a significant overstatement of the degree of peace in the East Asian system and also a misspecification of the mechanisms that have enabled that peace to emerge and endure. So what I want to do in this paper is to offer um, really a work in progress. This is my attempt to engage particularly with a body of scholarship known as the New Qing History, 
which has given us a very different sense of the East Asian international order. This is an order, supposedly according to the New Qing historians, that characterises an international system that is not Sinocentric so much as it was Manchu-centric. That is an order that does not rest on cultural consensus, but rather on the Manchus' deliberate cultivation and curatorship of cultural difference between their constituent imperial subjects as the basis of a strategy of divide and rule. And it is an order that was not characterised by an unproblematic normative commitment to a peaceable view of how international operations should operate. But it was an order that was dominated by a conquest dynasty that internalised deeply militaristic understandings of themselves and venerated war and the warrior vocation as being central to the identity of the Qing state. So that's the brief preview. What I want to briefly do now is to give you the bullet points, the format of the presentation. I want to begin first by elaborating a little bit on the aims of the paper, second by getting into the Confucian peace thesis in greater detail. Thirdly, what I then want to do is, having unpacked the core claims of the Confucian peace thesis and its underlying assumptions, offer a different conceptualisation of the Asian order centred around what I'm calling the Pax Manjurica. And then finally, what I want to do in the last part of the paper is to try to take the 30,000 feet view, get a sense of if we consider the Pax Manjurica rather than Confucian peace theory as the basis for understanding early modern East Asian international relations. How does that get us to think more generally about how international hierarchies emerge and endure in international politics? One thing that I want to establish from the outset, a really important caveat for me, I think that the pioneers of the Confucian peace thesis have done us an enormous service as international relations scholars in very powerfully unsettling a lot of the assumptions that we previously made about historical international systems operated. My target, then, is a simplistic caricature between peaceful East Asia hierarchy versus violent Westphalian anarchy. What I want to do in the final few minutes of the presentation is to say, if we uh, unsettle and destabilise that dichotomy, what kind of different productive comparisons can we make between Western and Asian international systems that are enabled once we think about the Pax Manjurica rather than the Confucian peace thesis. Okay, so first to give you a sense of really the aims of the paper. Aims of the paper, I've already telegraphed this in some detail, threefold. The first is to excavate and contest the core assumptions of the Confucian peace thesis. I've deliberately drawn a rhetorical illusion here between the Confucian peace thesis and the democratic peace thesis. I think in many respects there are comparisons that can be drawn there of the idea of a separate peace between a subset of polities based on conformity to particular ideals and certain institutional forms. So what I want to do is to first excavate the assumptions of the Confucian peace theory, second challenge it as I've mentioned by presenting an alternative and third revisit the dichotomy between peaceful East and violent West in light of this revision. So first to look at the Confucian peace thesis. Confucian peace thesis scholars begin with what is in many respects an uncontestable and increasingly robust empirical observation. And that is if we look at the period of early modern East Asian history and the typical benchmark that David Kang as the pioneering exponent of this approach takes is to say, well, so mid-14th century through to 1842, the end of the First Opium War, there is a significant and statistically observable 
relationship, covariance between the cultural affinity of Confucian China with what has been called the Confucianized periphery, in particular Korea and Vietnam, and a condition of peace versus far more violent relations that Confucian China under both Ming and Qing dynasties had in relation to particularly the, uh, the Asian steppe. The pithy summation of this that David Kang uh, offers in a forthcoming article of his that will soon be coming out in International Studies Quarterly is the idea of, I guess this is sort of the Confucian peace thesis bumper sticker, peace along borders, violence along frontiers. So he essentially says that if we take, for example, the Korean uh, state under the Yi dynasty, if we take Vietnam in the early modern period, these are states that are Confucian in much of their high culture, that adopt certain familiar institutional practices, for example, the maintenance of a remarkably modern form of bureaucratic rule on the basis of recruits recruited through a competitive examination system, familiar adherence to forms of tributary diplomacy, etc. And what Kang and his followers have done is to do what I think is a really fantastic job of saying that this is a fairly robust finding. If we are, and again, there's, there's some fascinating stuff they do in terms of trying to look through the both the Chinese and increasingly the Korean historical records in order to corroborate this, to say if we look at instances of violence within the East Asian international system, there seems to be a fairly reliable pattern here. Not a great deal of violence between China and its Confucianized periphery, but quite significant violence, including up to levels of genocidal violence waged against China's non-Confucian enemies along the Asian steppe. So they begin with this empirical observation, and they have extrapolated it out into an argument where the central claim is that if we want to understand patterns of interpolity violence in early modern East Asia, we need to turn first and foremost to cultural rather than material considerations. And the argument that they make is essentially one that says, let's go back to the idea of peace along borders versus war along frontiers. That there is a covariance between cultural similarity on the one hand and peaceful international relations on the other. The more Confucian a state was, the less inclined China was to use violence against it. The more likely it was to have a stable pattern of interpolitic relations. The less Confucian a state was, the more likely that China was to engage in violence against it. So it's a school of thought that begins with an increasingly robust observation, and once the article comes out, Kang and his co-author have done a really remarkable job, actually, and I'll confess as a sceptic of Confucian peace thesis, an annoyingly exhaustive and comprehensive job at bearing this out statistically. And they've got what seems at first glance to be a relatively compelling correlation between cultural similarity and absence of violence. But they are not content to simply make this observation. There have been a series of efforts to tease out the causal mechanisms. And this is where, again, the fact that I'm critiquing them shouldn't take away from the fact that I think this is a really incredible body of scholarship. They are admirably transparent in making the case for the primary force driving peace being constructivist ideational considerations rather than China's overwhelming material power. Now this is important because if we look at China's relations with its Confucianized periphery, to a certain extent the presence of peace or the absence of war, depending on how you want to code it, in many respects this is an overdetermined outcome. If we look at China under both the Ming and the Qing dynasties, it is difficult to imagine a more unipolar international system in terms of the extraordinary 
military preeminence that China enjoyed during both of those periods. Second, China during this period, as part of its strategy of tributary diplomacy and reciprocal gift exchange, deliberately engineered its terms of trade with its Confucian satellites along the basis that the Confucian satellites would actually get far more materially out of tributary diplomacy than would China. So this is a system that, to paraphrase and repurpose John Eikenbury, a system that was easy to join and hard to overturn. But irrespective of these more blunt material considerations, Kang and his followers have been very explicit about saying, no, it wasn't the material factors, it was the cultural factors. And the argument here is not simply a degree of cultural affinity in the abstract, but they're very explicit about saying it's the content of imperial Confucianism as much as anything else that leads to a peaceable outcome. And at the risk of simplifying their thesis, that is a risk that I'm certainly willing to take, if we're to give a sense of the broad cultural outlines of imperial Confucianism that they stress. And this scholarship is, on the one hand, very up-to-date with the most recent historiography on early modern China, but nevertheless still implicitly very much intellectually dependent on a lot of the earlier generation of scholarship, particularly around the work of Fairbank and the Chinese world order kind of worldview. Essentially the argument here is to say that there is a common cultural acknowledgement of the centrality of asymmetric bonds of benevolence and obedience that operate almost, if you like, in a fractal manner from the patriarchal household in which sons honour fathers, uh, older brothers are honoured by younger brothers, all the way up to the relationship between ministers and the emperor and between uh, surrounding polities and the Chinese emperor, who was seen as the indispensable pivot linking a cosmic and an earthly political order. His responsibility is to perform the rituals necessary to maintain a state of harmony in the earthly and cosmic order, and consequently the argument is a joint acknowledgement of this ideal of the Confucian polity provides, if you like, the um, intellectual software, the ideological infrastructure to underpin a set of very specific diplomatic practices. The two that Confucian peace thesis people follow are first tributary diplomacy, that vassals would come to the court in Beijing on a regular basis that was determined on the basis of their degree of intimate familiarity with the emperor and that they would offer symbolic obeisance in exchange for reciprocal gift exchange that would typically favour the weaker party. The second element is investiture missions, that ultimately the Korean king would acquire his authority from a grant of investiture from the Chinese emperor. So it's an extraordinarily elaborate argument. It is one that offers us what is at first glance a relatively persuasive take on the East Asian order, but it is one that vexes me. And it vexes me because I like to look at the downside in life. And in particular, I'm a little, I've always come at the Confucian peace thesis from a position of scepticism, of saying, OK, well, here is a model of international order that seems to offer a virtuous alter ego to the violent Westphalian West. To me, it seems a little like Orientalism in reverse, and it's also one that, upon closer inspection, I'd argue, fails to stand up to serious scrutiny. Now, let me be precise in the angle of the attack that I'm going to put forward here. The focus of this paper is on the last imperial dynasty in China, the Qing dynasty that ruled from 1644 through to the emergence of the First Republic in 1911-1912. This was an alien conquest dynasty. 
the Manchus emerge from Northeast Asia. They initially are not even known by the ethnonym the Manchus. This is an identity that forms over the course of several decades of conquest that begin in the 1680s, 1580s, 1590s and culminate in their takeover of the empire and the crushing of the Ming dynasty in 1644. Drawing upon a new body of scholarship, the New Qing history, what I've sought to do is to offer a very different picture of hierarchy in Asia, at least as it existed from coincidentally around the time that the Peace of Westphalia was taking hold in Europe all the way down to the early 20th century. Many of you will be familiar with the New Qing history. This was something that was quite new to me when I began this study, so it's always reassuring to find interesting historiography that corroborates and enables you to justify your pre-existing biases. New Qing history, key features of this. This is a development that occurs among Chinese historians from the early 1990s onwards. It's typically driven by people who had decided to not, no longer take at face value what had up until that time been an orthodox observation that the Manchus were like previous conquest dynasties, that though they had conquered China materially and militarily, they themselves had ultimately been sinicised and had essentially conformed to a model of cultural and political order maintained by China. The New Qing historians, on the other hand, went to the effort of actually learning Manchu and getting a sense of how the Manchu order looked like from the Manchu perspective themselves and saw a very different order. And that order was one in which the Manchus never lost their identity as a martial conquest dynasty. Mark Elliott goes so far as to use the extraordinarily evocative phrase that this was a dynasty that maintained a system of Manchu apartheid, that the Manchus saw themselves as separate and superior to all of their subject populations. So this is a key claim that is made from the outset, that this was a dynasty that never lost its sense of distinctiveness. It never lost its sense either of itself as a martial dynasty, as a dynasty in which your identity as a Manchu, and I'm open to being corrected on this, but I've read at least two sources that claim that the ethnonym Manchu simply means superior men. Very much this idea of a martial dynasty has a sense of itself as being unapologetically militaristic and consequently maintained an empire that presented different cultural faces to different people. And this is where I draw a very distinct contrast with the Confucian Peace Thesis. The Confucian Peace Thesis is a model of almost, and I don't mean to be too uncharitable in saying this, but it's almost sort of a first-generation constructivist model in terms of saying that there is an extraordinary power to cultural norms and ideas. The content of these cultural norms and ideas, the Confucian worldview, was inherently peaceable, and as a consequence, this provided the vital ideological scaffolding for an enduringly peaceful order. What I've instead sought to do, following the lead of the New Qing historians, to reconceive the idea of culture as a basis for imperial order. Now, let's step back for a moment and think about the study of culture and international order as it is applied in the West. There is an extraordinarily sophisticated body of post-colonial scholarship that has looked at the role of cultural manipulation, the deliberate Machiavellian curatorship of cultural difference in places particularly like the British Empire and particularly the British subcontinent, and saying that that was the basis of imperial power. 
there's some terrific work on this that essentially proceeds from, and again I'm simplifying here, but proceeds from the axiom, in order to divide and rule, you first need to define and rule. And we are all familiar with the idea, for example, to take one particularly conspicuous instance, if we look at the way that the British Empire constructed hierarchy on the Indian subcontinent. Constructing the idea of certain martial races certain elements of the Indian population as being inherently and innately suited to pursuing the warrior vocation was a critical part of the cultural politics through which the British Empire constituted and maintained its hierarchy in British India. One of the things that I find fascinating studying with the Manchus is that there is a similar process of cultural curatorship and the development of customised compacts to identify, isolate and culturally reconfigure subject populations both within the empire and outside of the empire in order to sustain imperial rule. Now what I want to do is to read a quote from one of the most important New Qing historians, Pamela Crosley, whom I think really captures the strategy of the Manchus. She's come up with a phrase which I find both evocative and very useful in trying to conceptualise how the Pax Manjurica worked. She talks about the idea of the cultivation of distinct imperial constituencies, that the Manchus offered different cultural faces to different actors, that they pursued different cultural scripts in order to legitimise their empire in different ways, and consequently operated on a divide and rule through define and rule strategy. Now the quote is relatively lengthy but um, I want to dwell on it because I think that it really does neatly distill what the New Qing historians now tell us about the Manchu order and what that in turn can I think tell us about the operation of hierarchy in early modern East Asia. So Pamela Crosley observes, the Qing emperorship was in its expression what I have called simultaneous, that is its edicts its diaries and its monuments were deliberately designed as imperial utterances in more than one language, at a minimum Manchu and Chinese, very commonly Manchu, Chinese and Mongolian, and after the middle of the 18th century, frequently in Manchu, Chinese, Mongolian, Tibetan and the Arabic script of many Central Asian Muslims that is called Uyghur. These were simultaneously expressions of imperial intentions in multiple frames. The next sentence is italicised, so I assume that I must think it was important. This simultaneity was not merely a matter of practicality. Each formally written language used represented a distinct aesthetic sensibility and a distinct ethical code. In the case of each language, the emperor claimed both as both the enunciator and the object of those sensibilities and those codes. What I think this phrase really captures is the idea that um, if you were the Manchus, and again, this is James Liebold at La Trobe University who offers this as an observation, the Qing emperor alternatively appeared as a Confucian monarch among the Chinese, a divine lord among the Manchus, a great Khan among the Mongols, and Manjusri, the bodhisattva of wisdom, among the Tibetans. Now, this strategy of, if you like, polyvalent signalling of being all things to all people, is a very different story to the story of monochromatic Confucian conformity that underpins the Confucian peace thesis. So already at a first cut, the most recent, the most cutting-edge historiography gives us a very different sense of the imperial strategies that the Manchus pursued. 
let me state that this is not to say that imperial Confucianism was not an integral part of the Qing governance strategy, but that it was instead a part of a much larger whole. In terms of the way I think that we can then think about hierarchy within these terms, and there's four axes of comparison that I want to draw out here along respectively the nature of hierarchy, the character of imperial ideology, practices for constituting and reproducing hierarchy and foundations for the imperial peace. And to avoid confusion, oh, there's a terrible pun about confusion and confusion that I'm just narrowly resisting there. I just did it. Oh. What I want to do is to first walk down the Confucian peace theory axis. Nature of hierarchy, hierarchy is grounded as an organic product of cultural consensus, that the Manchus uh, adopt a Sinic identity and that this provides the basis for them being able to secure the enduring loyalty of Confucianized outsiders. The character of imperial ideology through Confucian peace theory is explicitly assimilative. Some have gone so far as to describe this as a Confucian civilizing mission. That it rests on the idea that human nature is both malleable and potentially perfectible through righteous strategies of governance and the ritual enactment of imperial virtue. The practices for constituting and reproducing hierarchy consequently stress the role of socialisation. Socialisation of domestic and international elites to Confucianism, whether it be through domestically the imperial examination system or through ritualised tributary diplomacy and investiture missions. And the foundations of imperial peace therefore become Confucian cultural affinity and institutional isomorphism between China and Confucian satellite kingdoms. In many respects this is almost a matryoshka doll model of international order that Korea or Vietnam represent, if you like, mini Chinas that then neatly, in a fractal fashion, stack into or slot into an imperial hierarchy. Conversely, I'd suggest that if we take seriously the insights of the New Qing history and we look at these different axes of comparison, the nature of hierarchy, the character of imperial ideology, the practices that sustain it and the foundations for imperial peace, we get a very different set of perspectives. The nature of hierarchy is no longer the organic product of a transnational cultural consensus. Instead, it is, and I would argue this is actually much more consistent with much of constructivism, it is a construct that is generated through the systematic, deliberate Machiavellian curatorship of stratified and distinct ethnic imperial constituencies. It's worthwhile noting that the Manchus were very discriminate in the strategies that they adopted, that there were certain favoured peoples that were recognised as legitimate fragments within the imperial order and were subject to customised legitimation strategies. If, on the other hand, you were particularly tribes in the southwest, you were seen as having a culture that was not worthy of sustained recognition and you were subject to traditional Chinese, traditional Confucian assimilative practices. But it's this construct constructed through curatorship. The character of imperial ideology is also radically different. It is not assimilative. It is not a model of imperial ideology that demands a monochromatic, systematic conformity with one single cultural code. Instead, it is incorporative. It secures peace within and outside of the empire through ecumenical encompassment of diverse ethnic communities, communities that are intended to remain diverse and distinct imperial fragments. Instead of socialisation as the primary mechanism that is driving 
the maintenance of hierarchy. What we instead see is the organisation and accommodation of difference through divide and rule practices of what Daniel Nexon refers to as heterogeneous contracting, manifest in cultural patronage of Indigenous elites and in practices of administration that really bear comparison with colonial empires elsewhere. Michael Adas in the International History Review in 1998 edited a fantastic special edition looking at the Manchu Empire as a colonial empire alongside others, in particular the British and also the Tsarist Russian empires. And I think this comparison is worthy of drawing out. And finally, the foundations of imperial peace become very different. Instead of simply saying that peace rests primarily on cultural affinity and institutional isomorphism, this perspective says, well, no, ultimately, power within this system resides very clearly with the Manchus, that this is a distinct ethno-patrimonial form of domination that is underpinned by the unparalleled military power of the Manchus. So this is one that uh, much more directly draws in and emphasises the role of material power within this. Nevertheless, given my undeniable heritage as a Cornell PhD and therefore someone that is irredeemably tarred with the brush of constructivism, I am not proposing a raw, realist, alternative explanation here. The cultural politics of empire was critical. The point I'm making, though, is that it is a different form of cultural politics. And if the chair will indulge me, I'll just give one simple empirical illustration of this. If we look at the way in which the Manchus organised their military, one of the things that is fascinating, and again bears comparison with the British Raj, and I'll confess here the book that I'm writing at the moment is currently trying to draw out this comparison between the Manchus and the British Raj, what we see in both instances are demographically insignificant conquest dynasties that somehow manage to assert and maintain dominance over far larger populations. What we see in the instance of the Manchus is that from very early on in their conquest they developed what was known as the banner system of imperial martial organisation that deliberately and systematically organised different imperial constituencies into different imperial banners. And what we see during this system is a self-conscious, sustained, deliberate attempt at cultural re-engineering in order to provide the basis for a multi-ethnic conglomerate army necessary to sustain and maintain imperial dominance. And this is illustrative in the fact that we see early on in the conquest the emergence of distinct Mongol, Han Chinese and Manchu banners. There are deliberate attempts to re-engineer the army as the basis not merely for a vehicle for conquest, but a vehicle for post-conquest rule. The Manchu banner system remains a key part of the institutional architecture of the empire, and it is one that solidifies and institutionalises an empire that is multi-ethnic to the core, but that is also dominated and will remain dominated by a martial Manchu elite. But what I try to do in the paper is to draw this out in greater detail of saying, well, if you want to understand how order operated in Manchu-dominated East Asia, cultural constructivist considerations and material considerations are inextricably tied together. They are two sides of the same coin. In order to be able to mobilise and maintain a multi-ethnic conglomerate army, it was essential for the Manchus to engage in the kind of cultural politics that they did. I'm mindful of the time. What I want to do is to say that if we're looking at the critique that I'm trying to make in regards to the Confucian peace thesis, 
a criticism that has been presented to this paper, an argument that's been made is to say, well, yeah, like you can focus on what is occurring within the empire, but the Confucian peace thesis is all about what's happening between the empire and its neighbouring polities. The first argument that I'd make there is that I think that this is an anachronistic distinction that if we look at the way in which imperial orders operate, the boundaries between international relations, to the extent that we can even use that anachronism in the context of early modern Asia, and the inner imperial boundaries of the empire, I think that's a problematic distinction to begin with. But the second and one that has quite reasonably been made, an argument that has been made in relation to this paper is to say, yep, we might acknowledge that the Manchus were martial, that they were militarised, and that they treated some of their subjects differently to others, and indeed that, in fact, they treated subjects that they couldn't subdue with extraordinary cruelty. To take one example of this, in the 18th century, Qing-dominated China is the most successful territorial conquest machine in the world. All of this nonsense that we frequently hear now of, well, you know, there's, there's never been external aggression in China's history. Well, the territorial boundaries of China today were the construct of blitzkriegs throughout the 18th century. Has anyone ever heard of the Zungars? Yeah, some people have. It's no problem to have not heard of them because they were comprehensively exterminated by the Manchus in the midst of conquests in the mid-18th century. But the argument that has nevertheless been thrown at me as I've shared this paper with Confucian peace theorists is to say, well, this is a bit of a straw man because the scope conditions of our argument are actually pretty limited. The scope conditions of our argument only concern relations between imperial China and the Confucianized periphery. So sure, Manchu China might be militarised, it might be doing horrible, violent things in parts of the world that I ask scholars don't know about or don't care about, but our claim is simply for the Confucianized periphery. Now, there are two things that I would observe in relation to that. Firstly, there is an element of sleight of hand, because whenever this argument is presented and whenever it has gotten wider circulation in comparative studies of international systems, typically the larger story has been peaceful East versus violent West. Indeed, a lot of the cut-through power of the Confucian peace thesis early on came precisely out of the exaggerated contrast that was drawn uh, along these lines. So I think it's a little disingenuous to say, well, our scope conditions of our argument only apply to China's relations with Korea and Vietnam between the 14th and the 19th century. But I'm willing to go after them even on their own terms because I'm in an unusually belligerent mood, most likely as a result of having read too much about the Manchus and internalised something out of them. And that is that I think one of the great problems is even if we take the Confucian peace thesis on its narrowest terms, even if we accept that the scope conditions are explicitly articulated and delimited, and even if we were to accept that the larger stereotype of peaceful East versus violent West is not the advocacy of Confucian peace theorists but how the field has received it, even if we accept all of those things, <coughs> there is another problematic element in their argument, and that is this that the argument essentially says, well, we see peace, for example, between the Yi dynasty in Korea and Qing China. So we can assume that this is on the basis of a sincere deference based on cultural affinity. I potentially see something very different in, in both the Qing dynasty's relations with Korea and Vietnam. And that is not sincere deference so much as sullen acquiescence. 
if we look in particular the relationship that the Yi dynasty had with the Qing dynasty, they never accepted the idea that the Qing were legitimate successors. The relationship was profoundly different because they essentially saw the Manchus as violent, rude Aravists that did not represent or embody Confucian virtues. So to the extent that we can observe peace in, let's, let's be as generous as possible, take 1644 through to 1912, peace between Korea and China. One of the things, one of the directions that I'd like to take this paper on as I revise it is to actually dig a little bit deeper into that and say, OK, is what we're seeing the reflection of Confucian conformity or is it simply a sudden acquiescence to the greater material power of the Qing state? So to wrap up, what I've tried to do in the paper, obviously, is to unsettle a particular preconception, a stereotype, if you like, that we have in the field of peaceful East Asia versus violent West. But I would like to think that my enterprise is not simply destructive, but hopefully constructive or even you know, maybe reconstructive. What I hope to have done in terms of the critique is to shoot down the simplistic peaceful East versus violent West dichotomy. I am loath to throw around phrases like Orientalism, but I think there's definitely an element of the subtext there at some level. But what I would like to do in trying to foreground an alternative Pax Manjurica to the Confucian peace thesis is to suggest, well, this doesn't preclude the idea of comparison between Asian versus Western international systems, and nor does it suggest that there are no meaningful differences between them. What I would like to hope comes out of this larger comparative project is that it would be ideal to actually open up broader lines of comparison that currently exist. And in my remaining couple of minutes, I just want to entertain a couple of these. The first of those is that there is something undeniably powerful about the Confucian peace theorist argument of peace between borders and violence along frontiers. The idea of a bifurcated international order in which insiders are treated differently to outsiders. As I've indicated over the course of my presentation, I have problems with that at a broad level and also in some of its micro-mechanisms. But it must be said, if we're comparing different international systems, in some respects this sounds remarkably like the dichotomy between a logic of toleration versus a logic of civilization in the imperial expanding West in the 18th and 19th centuries. That if you're an insider, if you're a fellow European state, you recorded certain sovereign privileges that you weren't if you were recognised as a cultural outsider. So it might be that there is a potential axis of comparison to be productively drawn there. But where I want to conclude is that I think it is far more helpful for us to look at the affinities and similarities that the Manchu order, and I take the Manchu order in its totality, if not simply the convenient, narrow, Confucianized periphery, but the entire order, an order that stretched all the way from the Korean Peninsula, yes, well into Central Asia. We take this order and say, well, this actually provides us with a really helpful unit of comparison with other imperial orders in international systems. The logic that I described of define and rule in order to divide and rule is one that has already been fairly exhaustively studied in the context of British India. It is one that, if we recharacterise it along Daniel Nexon's lines as strategies of heterogeneous contracting, we see playing out also in the Habsburg Empire in the period of confessional Europe. 
What I would really like to hope is that in pursuing the comparative study of international systems, something which I think is absolutely important and which I think Confucian peace theorists deserve an enormous amount of credit for accelerating that process, I think it's really helpful to try to think about more generally how imperial orders are constituted, whether it is in Asia or elsewhere, what comparisons can be drawn, and in doing so to identify where the particular points of contrast are. And I'll leave on this note. What is distinctive and different if we compare the trajectories historically of East Asia versus Western Europe is that there is a point of divergence in the mid-17th century. In 1644, the Manchus seize power and over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries then succeed in maintaining and expanding a vast imperial hierarchy. The Manchus triumph because they are able to manage and harness the politics of cultural difference in ways that help sustain and expand an imperial system. If we contrast 1644 in East Asia versus 1648 in Western Europe, we see that in 1648 this represents not so much the birth certificate of a sovereign state system as the tombstone of successive Habsburg efforts to manage the politics of cultural and religious diversity in an effort to try to sustain and expand an imperial order. So the real point of potential departure then is not the question of why is East Asia so durably different from the medieval period onwards, but to suggest why is it that there were similarities between Western Europe and East Asia that only late in the peace diverged in the form of anarchy in the West versus imperial hierarchy in the East. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.